Welcome back. John Pielli, Pass Ball Show, MTR Radio Network, Hour 2 of the program. Uh, reminding you, uh, once again, after the program, we got uh, Philly Baseball Beads, 7 o'clock, MTR Sports Report at 8, followed by a special Christmas music special from 9 to 10 today. And afterwards, I'm going to be recording a special, uh, special edition of the Carlucci Show, which is back on MTR Radio. You can listen to that on Saturday from 8 to 10 from here on out. Uh, definitely a lot of stuff going on with that. Uh, listen, you know, we're, we're back to this date in baseball history, and I do want to you know, let you know if you're interested to uh, call into the show, 609-910-0687. We'll get you right up in here, let you know, what you, you know, figure out what's on your mind, what are you thinking about, and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll let, uh, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll kind of let you have it. Um, Tris Speaker in 19, I'm trying to think of what year it was. If I'm not mistaken, I think it was 1924, 1925. Similarly to Ty Cobb, who were both managers at the time, and I got the year wrong. It's 1926. Uh, resigns as the manager of the Cleveland Indians. Uh, really in, in kind of a shady situation. There was reports that there was a game uh, in 1919 involving um, uh, the Ty Cobb and the Detroit Tigers where it was actually a game that was uh, that was played out, wasn't played along the right guidelines. That the uh, you know the Tigers were looking to get third place money, so the uh, the Indians lost the game on purpose with some ha- money being sh- exchanged between the two managers, and it kind of reminded everybody obviously of what just happened with the World Series being thrown and everything involved with the 1919 Black Sox and the Reds winning because of the Gamblers and. All the backlash involving with that, and it took all these years until 1926, where the 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 you know you know what hit the fan, and I think it was you know a sad situation, and I think you know MLB kind of cut the rug because it involved two of the greatest players to ever play this game. You know, are you going to ban Ty Cobb and Tris Speaker for life? Those guys were exempt, huh? So I think there was even more shadiness involved when it came to, you know, the betting scandal and everything with Joe Jackson and, you know, the players obviously end up, you know, being banned for life and then never have an impact in the game. And Judge Landis, I think, played a little favoritism there. You know, I wonder what you think about it. I mean, if you, you know, if you agree with me, I think, uh, you know, listen, if there's betting involved and they're actually determining the outcome of a game, I don't know if they ever had enough evidence. That's the only thing. I mean, was there enough evidence to prove that these guys really did it? Apparently, a couple players out there, Tiger pitcher Dutch Leonard wrote to Harry Heilman that he had turned over letters written to him by Joe Wood and Cobb saying that they you know, were involved in betting in that, in that game. Did they, did the, you know, was the result... You know, could it be proven that the game was was uh, you know, wasn't wasn't played properly? I don't know, but to me, I think it's a it's a very it's a very big issue. And you know, all these years later, obviously, we're talking 1926 when Trish Speaker resigns, Ty Cobb would resign as the manager of the Detroit Tigers. Both of those players get in the Hall of Fame, no doubt. But listen, I think there's a you know there's there's some shadiness going on there, and obviously, with you know, pretty much everybody was involved in that is dead and buried and gone. You know, we could call on our, you know, MLB historians to kind of throw something out there and try to see what what happened there. 
But, you know, that would be something I'd like to ask a John Thorne or, you know, ask some of the other guys that really follow, you know, the game as long as it did. How true was that? Was it a legitimate thing that, you know, Ty Cobb and Tris Speaker, who have to be probably two of the ten best position players to ever play this game, and Cobb obviously ranks a little bit higher, but Speaker was unbelievable. Could they have been involved in throwing baseball games? And if it, if it was true, then I think it adds a whole other layer of things that are going on here. But, yeah, that happened on this day. Trish Speaker resigned as manager of the Cleveland Indians in 1926. And, of course, we're talking about November the 29th here. And, uh, you know, nothing, nothing really major, let's be honest, to stand out that really happened on this. Um, you look at, uh, you know, you want to throw some real kind of tiny things. The Marlins traded to the Mets, Carl Everett, Perculio Varis. Um, Charlie Smith, who was a player traded to the New York Yankees in exchange for Roger Maris in 1967, died at age 57. And that was obviously, you know, after, you know, Maris had passed away, you know, in, I believe, 1984, 1985. So, uh, you know, not, not too much crazy things. I mean, the White Sox got uh, Luis Aparicio back for, uh, you know, from from Baltimore um, eh, like I said, I, I really can't find anything here that really like uh, says, wow, I can't believe this happened on this date in the history of baseball. But I always like to get to it. You know, you look at some players that were, were born on this date. Uh, of course, Pedro Martinez was born on this date. Pedro Martinez was born on this date. My favorite player, Howard Johnson, was born on this date in time. Anybody else? Let you know, you know, pretty much. I want to, I want to hear what you're on your mind. We'll get you right up here. Like I said, CD Nikowski, close to about six thirty, will be joining us. And uh, yeah, there's a ton of stuff I want to go over with him. And uh, yeah, but um, let's be honest. There's some talk out there, of course, about should the Mets trade R.A. Dickey? Should they not trade him? Should they extend him? The Kansas City Royals, to me, are very a very interesting potential trade piece because they have a lot of what could help the New York Mets. The question is, what do the Kansas City Royals value in R.A. Dickey? Do they think that this is a guy that can go out there, that can go out there and do what, has, what has to be done here. I mean, I think the Mets are looking to trade Dickey, especially after right after the right extension. And, you know, the, really the matter of the whole situation and the thing that's going on is, can the Royals, do the Royals value Dickey enough? And I apologize for me fumbling over my words there. I just, you know, had about 10 thoughts go through my mind at once, but hopefully you can relate to that at some point in your life. But, you know, really, you're looking at Dickey. Is there enough value in him coming off of his one Cy Young season for a team like the Kansas City Royals to say, yeah, that's an investment I'm willing to take the next two, three years with? And let's be honest. I don't know what that answer is. I mean, you know, Will Myers, who's the big power-hitting outfield prospect that they have, 
know, Eric Hosmer, um, even Alex Gordon, who, you know, is on a contract that's going to pay him a lot of money pretty soon within the next couple of years. Salvador Perez, the catching prospect that I talked about. I don't know if the Royals would consider trading him. But when it comes down to it, you've got to figure out what is it that the Royals are going to be willing to part with to get a guy like Dickey. Do they value him enough? Do they value him like a Cy Young Award winner? If they do, then maybe the Mets can get their answer there. Maybe Will Myers is a possibility. Maybe Salvador Perez is a possibility. You know, I mentioned, you know, a guy like Greg Holland or Aaron Crow as a, a relief pitcher. Those are possibilities. But if the Royals don't see him that way, then the Mets are going to end up being offered something that they really aren't going to look too much forward to getting. And when you trade R.A. Dickey, if you, you, you decide that that's the course of action to go through, then you gotta you got to really value or put up there on a, a table or something what you'd like to address with that. Because if, if you're not addressing anything, if you're not getting an everyday outfielder for the next, you know, at least immediate future, and immediate future I mean three to five years, if you're not getting a catcher that's your catcher of the future, if you're not getting – you know, a package of players that are going to help you a little bit this year and a lot more in the future, then why are you doing it? Because R.A. Dickey has enough value to the Mets that they could be competitive with him. And a lot of thought has been, hey, the Mets have one strength and one strength only, and that's their starting pitching. You know, you expect Johan Santana to come back. You got Dickey and Harvey and Jonathan Neese, perhaps Dylan G coming back healthy. Zach Wheeler out right on the horizons. So you got to trade from your strength. And that's your starting pitching. And in my opinion, I don't think you absolutely have to do it. And the Mets don't have to make a trade from their excess in starting pitching just to make a trade. The way I have to I look at it and the way that I really feel is that if you don't get what you're looking to get, if you don't get a significant upgrade in your outfield, if you don't get even a younger star prospect that you feel can't miss, then why are you wasting your time making a trade? And that does that even gets me into Jonathan Neese, where a guy who he's, he signed a very team-friendly contract over the next several years. And all that being said, why, why are you going to go out of your way to trade him? Yes, he has value, and he probably has more value at this point than R.A. Dickey does. But you don't make a trade just to make a trade. You don't say, hey, we'll be all right in the pitching staff. Yeah, let's get a couple guys here and there. I want to see a move like this upgrade the team immediately. And I'll throw a random name out there, and I'm not going to really see how I can make a deal that would make any sense involving this. But an example would be, you trade a guy like Nice, I want Justin Upton back. And like I said, this isn't, this isn't me being a mong. But this is just a, a random suggestion and kind of an example to make of the point that I'm trying to get forth to you. Get a player that's going to be in, you know, have an impact. And I don't, I don't know if the Mets would even do a Jonathan Neese for Justin Upton trade. I don't know if the Arizona Diamondbacks would do that either. I mean, to me, I think there's a lot of holes. It would have to be the beginning of a bigger deal, in my opinion, because you talk about the Diamondbacks wanting a shortstop. And then you suggest, hey, what about Ruben Tejada? 
And, you know, how can you trade Ruben Tejada? Because, you know, the Mets don't have another shortstop, and he's going to be the next Jose Reyes. I obviously, you sense the sarcasm in my voice just a little bit. But, obviously, it's going to take something like that because the Diamondbacks, who have said that they're not really looking to trade Justin Upton, I think when there's smoke, there's fire. You've been hearing so much about the possibility of the Diamondbacks trading Upton, and the guy is just 25 years old. You're not talking about a guy that's you know been there for a really long time. He's only been up there the past three years. So you know, looking at it that way, I don't think that there's nothing to the rumor of Justin Upton being out there. And I think as the winter meetings start, you're going to really see. And here, here's the comparison that I'll make to you. And here's the point that I'll make that I'll kind of answer your argument either yes or no. The winter meetings happen next week, Monday. Give it 10 days from the start of the winter meetings. And if Justin Upton is still an Arizona Diamondback, he's not going to be traded at all. Because as these winter meetings get going, how many teams are going to have this fantasy, this thought, this imagination and picture what Justin Upton would look like in their outfield? And maybe you could start out by naming the teams that wouldn't be thinking like that. Every team and their mother is going to be out there thinking about what kind of package they could put together for Justin Upton if he's available. You got a 25-year-old power-hitting outfielder who plays great defense, has a strong throwing arm, can run. He's really the definition of your five-tool player. And he's up there. He's available. He could be had. A lot of teams are going to be in on it. And if the Diamondbacks, from Ken Kendrick to Kevin Towers, to anybody involved in that organization, if they are considering trading him, even if it's for a king's ransom, it's going to get done within the next 10 days or so. Because those teams are going to be knocking on the door. They're going to be asking Kevin Towers, hey, is he still available? What do you think of this proposal? What do you think of that proposal? And if he's wavering at all of whether or not he's going to trade him, he's going to get traded. And if he doesn't, if he doesn't get traded, that means that the Arizona Diamondbacks have decided that they're moving forward with Justin Upton. And there's a guy who I think will have a very big bounce back season. You know, he had a little bit of a down year last year, but listen, the guy is too talented to stick to that and digress even more. He's going to be fine. And in the end, if I, you put a gun to my head, I say that he ends up being signed for even a longer extension, and he may finish his career with the Arizona Diamondbacks. And you may think that's a little crazy, but yeah, I, I think that's the way I'm going to go with it. But, you know, if you guys checked out Bases Empty blog at johnpiele.com, you know, I've written some uh, decent articles lately, and I don't ever want to talk, you know, saying that they're better than they really are. But, you know, thanks to everybody that enjoys them, you know, either on uh, johnpiele.com or mtrmedia.com. And uh, I, wrote, I wrote yesterday about something that I, I thought was pretty interesting. And, you know, a lot of you baseball, you know, baseball fans, a lot of guys that were out there really follow the game for a long time. You know, it's, it's, you know, you brush it off your shoulder because you know it, you lived it, you know, you feel like you lived it. But the, Mon the Monty Stratton story, to me, really got to me. Because you talk about a guy who ended up trying to make a comeback after having his leg amputated in a hunting accident. And I know the movie with James Stewart in 1949, you know, portrayed his life and everything. And obviously, all of you that are a little bit older than me probably know it a little more than I did. 
And I've taken the time to kind of examine it, to study it a little bit, to try to figure out a little more of what happened. And this is a guy who, on one leg, managed to win 18 games in the minor leagues. And I know it wasn't the biggest level of competition. It wasn't the highest level of competition. And him being on the teams that he played for really up until age 41 probably more had to do with publicity than to actually get this guy back into the major leagues. But it is certainly a story of strength and determination. I mean, we talk about Pete Gray, the one-armed outfielder. You talk about Jim Abbott, you know, missing his left, his uh, right hand. And both of them made the major leagues. And, of course, Jim Abbott ended up uh, having a very, a very decent major league career, throwing a no-hitter with the Yankees. But the story of Monty Stratton, to me, really tops them all. And, and that's even the, though the fact that he did not make the major leagues again. I think it's an amazing, amazing story. The fact that this guy on one leg, playing with a wooden leg, got himself to a point where he could start throwing the ball again competitively and was pitching to hitters with one freaking leg. To me, that's an amazing, amazing story. And we don't really get into stuff like that too much, but I think that was an amazing story. And, and actually, I saw the trailer of the movie, the uh, the Monty Stratton story, uh, starring James Stewart, appearances by... Uh, Gene, Gene Beachton and, and um, Bill Dickey and you know some others involved in it, but um, I did see the trailer and it's a, it's more of a love story than anything and you know kind of doesn't tell the baseball story as much, but it's an amazing amazing story. But listen, we're gonna take our first break of the hour. I think this will be the only one. We'll take you right up till seven o'clock today, where Philly baseball beats gonna join you. It's John Pielli, Pass Ball Show, MTR Radio Network. We'll be back in a couple minutes. And maybe we will be, or maybe we won't be. But yeah, we're going to try to get you. There you go. Hello, everyone. This is Joe Lamort from ADD Sports Radio. Thanks for tuning in to MTRRadio.com. Don't forget to tap that app in the Android Market and iPhone App Store. Search MTR Radio on your handheld device. Tap that app. We're on 24-7. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at MTR Radio. What's up, everybody? This is James Flippin, and you're rocking with the crew on MTR Radio. Welcome to MTRRadio.com. You can listen to our live programming Monday through Friday. Get your voice heard by calling us at 609-910-0687 and on Facebook and Twitter at MTR Radio. You can put this together, right? <clears throat> I like to tap that app on MTR Radio. <laughs> uh, let's see. Um. MTR. Don't forget to tap that app in the Android Market and iPhone App Store. Search MTR Radio on your handheld device. Tap that app. Everybody's doing it. <laughs> MTR Radio. Hey everyone, this is Joe Lamort from ADD Sports Radio. Thanks for tuning in to MTRRadio.com. We're on 24-7. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at MTR Radio. Don't forget to tap that app in the Android Market and iPhone App Store. Search MTR Radio on your handheld device. Tap that app. Everybody's doing it. <laughs> MTR Radio. 
I love MTR Radio because of its uh, innovative direction. That's a bunch of shit. I love MTR Radio because they accept me. Ah, you knucklehead. Hey, everyone. This is Joe Lamort from ADD Sports Radio. Thanks for tuning in to MTRRadio.com. We're on 24-7. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at MTR Radio. Trending today on Twitter. MTR. Welcome back. Past Ball Show on MTR Radio Networks. John Pielli finishing up. Uh, a lot of this going on in Major League Baseball. And like I said, you know, you're, you're hitting this, the part of hot stove, and it's going to be uh, kicking up in a little bit. And I think it's very interesting to see what's going to happen over the next week or so. And I'm actually looking forward to the show next week where I'll be back down in uh, Bogey's Tavern. You know, have a great uh, have a great time here at CSB as well. But, um, you know, the show next week I think is going to you know involve a lot more about what's going on in the hot stove. And I think uh, you're going to have a lot more things to really talk about. And, uh, you know, we're certainly going to be joined in a little bit by a, a couple of our guests to the show as we're going to close out the show. But I'm going to give you one last chance if you do want to call in, 609-910-0687. Um, talk hot stove. You want to talk about your favorite team, yada, yada, yada. Like I said, we have a couple minutes that we will we will be able to take your phone calls in. But kind of what I was thinking about before, and I, and I, I, really, uh, I really want to make a point to try to say this. A lot of teams go out there and they, you know, they they feel like, you know, their their team, you know, is is close enough to make it to the postseason, to win a division, to get to the World Series. And, you know, it's amazing that you see a lot of teams that end up winning the so-called off-season uh, pennant or the off-season championship end up not doing what's expected. And I think you can make the case last year with the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. And signing Albert Pujols and getting C.J. Wilson and, you know, having the stars that they already had and really putting that all together, that they were such a can't-miss team. And listen, 93 games is nothing to be ashamed of, which could have won a lot of the divisions in baseball, including the AL Central, where the Tigers won. But you can even make the case that the Tigers were a little bit of a disappointment. You know, you got Verlander and you got Cabrera and you add Prince Fielder. So how could you know how could that not work out? And this year, obviously, the team is, of course, the Toronto Blue Jays, who go out there and they make the blockbuster deal with the Miami Marlins. They get Jose Reyes, they get Mark Burley, they get Josh Johnson, Emilio Bonifacio, and John Buck in exchange for seven players. And you know they are you know for for the most part, I think they got some decent prospects. The Echeverria kid looks like he's going to be pretty good. Nicolino, the left-handed pitcher, I think is going to actually help the Marlins a little sooner rather than later. And, you know, obviously from the Marlins' perspective, it looks like a disaster. And, you know, in their opinion or their perception, they had no interest in competing in the near future when they made this trade. But from the Toronto Blue Jays' end, you know, are they the offseason champions now? Did they win the offseason on paper by making this trade and signing Melky Cabrera, who, let's be honest, there are still are some doubts about. And then they go in and they add their manager. They bring back John Gibbons, who, until the day he was hired, didn't even know he was under consideration. But, you know, we're going to go in. We're going to take this phone call right now. And let me just check to see who it is. Hey, you're on a pass ball show. Thanks for having a couple minutes. Who we got here? This is CJ Nikowski. Hey, CJ Nikowski, man. I had to recognize the number real quick. Thanks for having a couple minutes. I appreciate you being able to call into the show, man. Oh, no problem. My pleasure. And you know, listen. I'm going to start out and kind of get into uh, you know a little bit about what you're doing. You, you uh, 
you getting a chance to start winter ball now? Uh, yeah, I'm going to leave tomorrow. Uh, it looks like, or at least in the next couple of days, I'm going to head down to the Dominican and uh, spend hopefully the last three weeks of the regular season there. And the team that I'm going to will hopefully, uh, hopefully make the playoffs once they maybe stay a little bit longer. Now nah, that's good to hear, man. So you know, on your horizons, you're looking to uh, try to get back into the major leagues one, maybe one last time, or maybe a, uh, you know, maybe for for a little time to come, huh? Yeah, it would be ideal, man. I think the one thing I have working in my advantage is that I'm left-handed. And so yeah, I made this conversion to sidearm last year and got a chance to try it out with the Mets uh, in the minor leagues. And, and for the bulk of it, it went really well. I had a couple of bumps in the road toward the end, but I saw enough there. And I think they saw enough there and, uh, to make it you know worth it to try to continue. No, no question about it, man. Now, you talk a little bit about the change in the delivery a little bit. You know, you, you went from being you know a conventional, over-the-top lefty, who originally started his career as a starting pitcher, and now you're going into the sidearm motion and stuff like that. Did you find it that difficult to make that transition to be kind of you know a you know underhand sidearm and type of pitcher? To do it right took a little bit more time than I thought. I'd always mess around with dropping down here and there, um, but just kind of drop my arm down without putting a lot of thought behind it. And then the more experienced pitching coaches that I got around, and the more things that I picked up, I realized there was a lot more to it than just dropping your arm angle. And so that took a little bit of time getting comfortable, uh, but eventually you get to that point where it actually gets harder to try to throw back over the top. Now I try to play catch, and I can play catch, but you do to keep your arm strong from my regular traditional arm angle. I don't know if I could pitch from there anymore. That almost feels foreign now to me. Wow. Uh, so that took a little bit of time to get there, though. And uh, there's a lot of little quirks. And the one thing that I ran into this year, uh, when things do go, you know, go a little bad or get a little bit off, because it's new, you know, I don't have the – the 17 years of, uh, of a data bank built up from all my you know past previous experiences that I can kind of go to to help me fix something. And so that was a little bit of a struggle. And I said, you know, something wasn't right. I remember one game, the ball was flat, and I, couldn't, I could not figure out the adjustment. And one of the things that, that professional baseball players do well is kind of make adjustments on the fly. It's part of the reason that they can stick around and, and be able to compete at that level. And so being that it was new, it was almost like kind of being a rookie again in some sense because there isn't that experience there. So that was that part got a little tricky, but I was able to, to work it out and get through it. It just took a little bit longer than I would like it to. Um, but, yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot to it, how you want to use your pitches and even kind of uh, adjusting your repertoire. And for me, I had to get rid of my cutter. You're not going to throw a cutter from that angle. At least I'm not going to be able to, and uh, which isn't a cool traditional pitch. And I had to change my grip on my changeup, and that took me a little while to get used to that. And, and actually, I think my changeup from there is better than my changeup from my old angle. And so there's definitely a lot of a lot of different adjustments and quirks along the way, but you have to be patient, and you have to be committed to it, and you have to understand there's going to be some bumps in the road. But I feel like I've gotten to the point now where I'm real comfortable with it and uh, and very confident with it. And I tell you, what fascinates me the most, CJ, is that you know you you spend a certain amount of time of your professional career, you know, throwing a ball from you know I'm sure as far back as you could remember, and then you hit a point. Yeah, now where you totally decide to reinvent yourself and do something totally different. Now, looking at looking at as far as your fastball, are you able to maintain, you know, at least the velocity that you had when you were throwing, you know, directly overhand? Oh gosh, no, no, not yeah. even close. I mean, and that's a combination of reasons. One, because of the arm angle change or how low I am, uh, but also because I guess when I was about thirty-six and pitching in Korea, I'd done some damage to my shoulder, and so that slowed me down a little bit as well. Um, you know, in my, I hate to say this phrase, but I guess in my heyday or in, you know, when I was kind of at the peak of my career, you know, I would see 94. Occasionally, blue moon, I'd see 95, but that was probably just a just a blip in the radar gun. But, you know, I would top out at 94 
uh, even late in my career, even into my 30s. And then so now to go here, sidearm it, essentially made a full commitment to it at 38. Um, you know, on the high end, I'll see 88 these days. But what I've learned, and which means you, you know, which means I'll, I'll sit lower than that. Well, I mean, I'll probably sit at 86. And you know, I watch all these other sidearm guys. Watch Javier Lopez and Randy Choate, uh, Rapata, who pitches for the Yankees. And that velocity, what it says on the radar gun, is pretty insignificant. Uh, Darren Odette, you watch him a righty with with Baltimore. There's nothing exciting like Ziegler with Arizona. You don't light up the radar gun from down there anymore. But what it becomes is, you know, relative velocity. What does it look like to a hitter? I remember facing uh, the Yankees in AAA and, uh, you know, working a guy, a right-handed batter, a couple change-ups, you know, you kind of tease him away, he slows back down, he speeds that up, and then all of a sudden I threw a four-seam fastball in, and it probably was 84 miles an hour and just freezes him and locks him up. And so if you execute it right, it's not so much what the radar gun says, but what you make it look like. And so there's a game plan to that. And you got to be careful, too, because it'll mess with your, mess with your head a little bit. you gotta, you got to put your pride aside. And say, you know, I almost tell myself, don't look. I don't want to know what the radar gun says because there's, there's not going to be a number there that's going to make me happy anymore. So don't even, don't even bother looking back and commit to the velocity and understand that uh, it's not going to be about the speed. It's going to be about the deception, the movement, and how you set it up. No, no question, man. Now, you, you hit on something that I was I was kind of thinking about as, as you made the decision to change to the you know the the, the, the less conventional arm angle. Did you consult? And these other pitchers that, you know, make a living over throwing a ball sidearm and have the, you know, the lower arm angle? I didn't talk to any pitchers. Uh, one of the first guys I talked to was Rick Peterson. Uh, I called him after I just got done in Korea in 2010 and wanted to make the conversion going into 2011. And he wasn't working that year for anybody, and so I tracked him down and, and went and worked with him. And he kind of got me started on it. I'd, I'd been doing it on my own kind of watching guys on TV a little bit, trying to pick up different things and creating my own delivery. And when he saw it, he didn't like it. He wanted me to start from scratch. And so I got a, a good bulk of what I'm doing or close to what I'm doing now from him. Uh, once I signed with the Mets and worked with their guys, uh, most specifically um, Ron Romanic, who was the uh, pitching coach for the A's two years ago, uh, who's now the coordinator for the Mets last year. He had some new stuff for me. He made some changes in my delivery. And so it was more pitching coaches than players. I do, I do watch the guys whenever I see a lefty throw on the side. I'm lefty. I always make, make sure I get time to watch. Or I've been able to pick up some video of some other guys that watched Pedro Feliciano whenever I could when he was still healthy and throwing from that sidearm angle. And so the coaches have been a big help. And then ultimately it's going out there and, and experiencing it and feeling it and, and getting feedback from hitters. And, and that's what this year was for me. Uh, a couple of those bumps in the road were ultimately good things because the mistakes that I made, I learned from them just like anything, uh, but it was all new. So uh, I, for the most part, I was happy with how it went. So I think that, um, you know, you try to get as much information as you can, and then you end up kind of creating your own delivery out of it. But certainly I think Rick Peterson and Ron were, were big helps for me. Yeah, no question, man. Once again, this is John Piel. I'm here with uh, Major League pitcher C.J. Nikowski. He's about to go to Winter Bowl. You can follow him on Twitter, at C.J. Nikowski. Now, C.J., as um, – you know, you you make you make this transition to be a, you know a lefty spe- you know obviously a lefty specialist and it's something that you did probably for years before you changed the arm angle a little bit. Um, and I always want to ask this to pitchers that end up doing that: Do you get to a point where you you feel you know whatever mentally that it's that much more difficult to get out a right hand batter, or do you are you still able to pitch with that confidence that if you know you know whoever's up there, no matter what, I could get them out if I make my pitches. Yeah, I gotten, I've gotten really comfortable against righties. 
part of that has been because of the changeup. Uh, part of it was kind of building a game plan by experience this year. There was a point there where I thought, you know what, give me the lefty and then get me out of the game. Maybe that's the best thing for me coming from this angle and where my arm strength is right now. But ultimately realized, even for the guys when I was, you know, for me, even when I was throwing in the low 90s, uh, there's going to be that pinch hitter. There's going to be that switch hitter. And so you don't want to limit yourself. And so you have to commit to being able to try to at least get righties out. And so I think I'm at the point where, and I'd like to be manager that I have to feel this way, that if I do come into a game, he's okay if they pinch hit or he's okay with me turning a switch hitter around. And so I have a game plan for righties. And I feel like if I execute it, I'll be in good shape. Uh, at the same time, we don't want to have too much exposure to righties. Uh, and that's just being honest with myself. And that's when I really ran into trouble. I had a couple outings, back-to-back outings, as a matter of fact, where they just needed me to suck up some innings and kind of be a long man. And it didn't go too well. Not surprised me. You'd like to think you could do it. You know, I like to think I could throw two innings or two and change uh, from that arm angle. But realistically, at the major league level, it's probably not going to happen. It's not an ideal situation for what I'm doing or what I bring to the table. Um, and I like that. I, mean, I kind of like the short roll. But you always want to be available. You don't want your manager to go, man, I hope I can't bring him in because they pinch hit, we're done. And so you don't want to you don't want to be that guy. So developing the changeup was a big part of that and also the game plan, kind of executing or me, understanding where you want to execute your pitches in certain situations against those righties. And I've learned from it and I actually feel pretty confident against them. And I tell you what I what I really you know enjoy about you know like following your career is you've really kind of done everything. You've gone from being a starting pitcher to be a guy that you know may go out there and pitch a couple innings out of relief to now being the lefty specialist. Tell us a little bit about your initial transition from being a starting pitcher to a reliever. Yeah, you, know, you had you had, a, you had you had a chance to pitch in the major leagues a little bit with you know Cincinnati and Detroit your first couple of years. Didn't really have the major league success that you were looking for. Tell us a little bit about that transition to being a starter to a reliever. Yeah, you know, my first year with Houston, uh, or actually it was my second year with them, or my first year to have a shot at breaking the big league round to the eight, and I'd been a starter the previous year for them the whole year in AAA, and they flat out told me, hey, any chance of you making the team is going to be out of the bullpen. And so you'll do whatever it takes, you know, as a professional baseball player, the big leagues is where it's at, regardless of the role. And so I was 25 years old at the time. They put me in the bullpen. I had a really good spring, made the team. And then the learning adjustments came as far as what is life like for a lefty or any reliever, doesn't matter left to right, but just what is life like for a reliever. And so there were some big adjustments. I would tell you that probably the biggest one for the first year out for me was understanding how to warm up, uh, to be honest with you, because you're so used to your starter's routine. Uh, you're so used to kind of taking your time. Uh, and what becomes important, you start to realize as a reliever, you have to conserve your pitches. And you have to just kind of get to that point where you're just about ready to go in the game. Don't forget you're going to get eight more warm-ups out on the game mound and not to overdo it. And I was overdoing it big time my first year. There was times where I'd get up three or four times in a game and have end up throwing 85 pitches and not pitched yet in the game. You know, just down in the bullpen. And I remember my bullpen coach at the time saying something to me about it. I but your arm feels good, you're young. You're coming off throwing where you're, you're used to starting, and all of a sudden you're out there and you're only throwing an inning and you're done. And uh, it was actually, I don't want to say easy because it's never easy to pitch in the big leagues, but it seemed easier for me at the time. I remember thinking that, well, that's it. I just got to throw one inning. I can just air it out for an inning. Um, and I, I was better suited for it. It definitely fit me better, I think, mentally, as much as I wish that I could have been a successful starter. And, and obviously that's what the Reds were thinking by taking me at such a high pick in 94. Uh, but it just, you know, it didn't happen, and I, I found a home in the bullpen. And mentally, I think it was a good spot for me. I really enjoy coming to the ballpark every day, having a chance to, to be in every game, uh, and usually coming in there when it counts in kind of a bigger situation, uh, sitting down in the bullpen and 
just kind of grew fun and flicking season, and you could be in a game within, you know, four or five minutes after that. So that adrenaline rush, I really fed off of it, and I really enjoyed it. But it takes a little bit of adjustment for sure for young guys. It's part of, like, understanding how to, how to get ready, how to prepare, how to bounce back, and really knowing your arm. Yeah, no, absolutely, man. Once again, this is John Piel. I'm here with uh, Major League pitcher C.J. Nikoski, who hopefully we'll get a chance to see him in spring training this year as he, uh, you know, attempts to make another, you know, another comeback as far as being a lefty specialist, changing the whole arm angle and the whole thing. And I'll tell you, I do want to bring up one point that I think is pretty interesting. You talk about from being a starter to a reliever, and, I, you know, you, you strike me as a good, you know, mind, a guy that does, a, you know, a lot of thinking when it comes to, you know, different types of things. You know, as a starting pitcher, you're going out there. You you want to throw, you know, 100 pitches. You know, maybe that's the limit. Maybe you could go out there and go more. And then you switch to the role as being a reliever where you're only looking to hopefully 10 to 20 pitches. You want to stay obviously closer to 10 because you don't want to get in that much trouble. But if as when you initially made the move to being a reliever, did you really feel the need to maybe have to throw afterwards or as much, or was it a situation that you, you say, "All right, I I, I got that inning. I'm going to be more available tomorrow. I'll be able to get my regular work in that way." Oh yeah, definitely. You never think about throwing more, knowing, especially if it was a short outing, that you have to be ready to go the next day. And that was something I definitely learned over time: is to save the bullets, and not to waste them pregame, not to waste them warming up. Uh, but to make sure you had everything available for game time, and, uh, and that, again, that's one of those things that takes a little bit of time to get used to. You got to get, you know, you, you come out like I said, you come out of a game after throwing one inning or facing a couple of hitters. You know, from the year before, where you're anticipating and expecting yourself to go at least six or seven, if not more. Uh, there's a, it almost has a little bit of a weird feeling. Like I said, you come off the mound and just says you're done, and you're like, that's it. You know, I won't face you know X amount of guys. It wasn't that many, but. Uh, you get used to it pretty quick. It doesn't take too long, but those first few times, it could be a first half a year or full, full year for some guys. Once you get comfortable with it or kind of understand the role, it's funny. Then you go in the other direction, you know, especially being a short reliever. Then you go, and the manager asks you to throw two innings. You're like, two innings? You know, it makes it seem like it's a mountain to climb. After you know coming up to the minor leagues, you knew you were you know trying to throw like I said at least six or seven. And so there's a there's this funny little game you kind of end up playing with yourself and trying to understand your role, but. Ultimately, it's about making sure you have everything, whatever it takes to prepare, to make sure every day that you're available to give, you know, give your best during the game. Now, you have a little bit of interest in writing, huh? I do, yeah. I know, and it wasn't something that I ever realized I had, to be honest with you. Um, you know, I had this, I've had this website forever since 97. Um, I kind of fell into getting involved on the Internet uh, with baseball fans just, you know, back in '97, uh, when I was in AAA with the Astros in New Orleans, uh, the guys who ran the website at the time. This was pre-MLB.com days, where teams had their own websites and they were independently owned, and they all looked different. And the guys that ran the Astros website asked me if I would write a column for them from New Orleans. And I thought, well, who, you know, who's be interested in that? But sure, I'll do it. You know, I don't know anything about it, but I'll do it. And then I saw the response, and I would write this column twice a month. And it would go out on their email list, and I got some really good feedback. And for me, at least, that was the first time I saw it, and I think probably one of the first times, in, at least in baseball, probably in sports, where the Internet was a way for baseball players to interact with baseball fans. And they really they really dug it. They really uh, ate it up. I mean, it was something they really enjoyed. And, you know, just I would never have forgotten what it's like to be a fan. And so I was always showing people kind of, you know, the inside of the game that I knew I would have been interested in as a fan, even though now I was playing it for a living. And so uh, that's how I started writing. And, um, you know, to be honest with you, 
not the greatest English student, not the greatest writing student. Don't really like to read that much. A little bit better now that I'm getting older, but I never liked it as a kid. And for some reason, uh, I've always seemed to get some pretty good feedback uh, from some pretty um, from people's opinions that matter. Some you know guys in the business that have told me that I, I for whatever reason, seem to write pretty well, or uh, just maybe an ability to connect with people. I don't know where it comes from. Uh, I feel fortunate to do it, but over time, I've noticed that I love doing it. I enjoy doing it. And so that's something for me that I would like to do when I'm done playing, some kind of combination of still writing about the game and then, and maybe some broadcasting. And so we'll see. I've had to talk to some people about it, and hopefully that part of my life will not be starting too soon, but maybe it's something that uh, when I end up playing and I'm finally giving us up, that that'll be probably one of the first things that I try to get into. No, no question, man. Now tell us, tell us a little bit about the article you wrote, the real one that really got my attention. You know, I know Bill James actually throws some accolades towards it, which I'm sure is, uh, you know, it's it's great to have uh, get a compliment for a guy who has had as much of an impact on the game of baseball as Bill James. But you know, you wrote about you know sabermetrics and the lack of credit really being given to coaching. And uh, you know, if I summarize, if I'm summarizing that right, I, I hope I am. But uh, tell us a little bit about what you know, what went into the article, and you know, let the fans know a little bit about you know your 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 main points behind it. Well, baseball perspective um, kind of let me write whatever I wanted to write about, to be honest with you. And they just said, "Hey, would you be interested in doing a guest piece?" And I said, "Absolutely." And now I look forward to any opportunity I can to to practice and to get good feedback and to be edited. You know, to be quite honest, um, now I've had a chance to write for the AP a few times. I wrote an article for Sports Illustrated two years ago when I went through my own troubles and stem cell procedure and everything else. Um, but this article was, I ended up going down the path of uh, kind of touching on major league coaching, you know, something that doesn't get a lot of attention. But I've just noticed, excuse me, a little bit of reading that I've done um, kind of in this favorite metric community, at least for the guys that are in the media, is that it always just kind of seems to get ignored and, and doesn't very and doesn't get validated and doesn't, doesn't get any credit for having the value that it does. And it's always kind of bugging me. I mean, there's always going to be that little bit of, you know, I think the side remarks that go that come out of some of the sabermetric guys that are in the media, uh, sometimes, you know, they're trying to be funny or take shots at, at things that players or coaches think are important. And so I saw, I saw it enough that I was like, you know, this might be a good topic to tackle. And so let me kind of address why I know, not that I think, but why do I know that uh, major league coaches have great value and, and what they bring to the table. And so I tried to, tried to tap into that a little bit. I didn't give a lot of examples. That was the one thing I was criticized on a little bit, but I would never give examples of bad coaching or at least, you know, too much of it. I would never put a name to that kind of stuff, but I was more trying to dig into here's what a coach does, here's what a really good coach does, and why he has value. And I think that a lot of times, at least in the media, when those guys do get shot down or their value gets kind of, uh, you know, laughed at a little bit, it's because it's not that, like I said in the article, you're not going to take a 220 hitter and turn him into a batting champion. In the year. That's not what a major league coach does. What a major league coach does is, at least from I say from a hitting standpoint, is keeps guys on track. You know, makes himself available, uh, does the little things, knows his hitters inside and out, their mechanics. You know, what makes them tick, what works, what doesn't, help prepare scouting reports, all that kind of stuff, so that gives them puts them in the best chance to succeed. They're going to have slumps over the years. They're going to have sometimes they're going to have bad years. And that's not the coach's fault. Uh, what his job is, though, is to make sure that his lows are not too low and that they don't last too long. And that's more his deal is to try to keep guys on track, maybe a couple of little things to help them improve. Uh, but it's hard to notice what's going on. And a lot of times when a coach is really doing his job, uh, it will go completely unnoticed because everybody's doing fine. Um, and, and so I think that's why it's hard for people, especially sabermetric writers, 
uh, to really have any kind of appreciation for it because they can't quantify it and they can't see it. And and this is not meant to to be a, I played and you didn't you know remark, but they just don't know and they haven't been there. And just like I don't pretend to know things about that, I'm not there. I couldn't be a, a golf coach or a basketball coach. You really can't comment and say, well, what is a coach who doesn't do anything? Well, you don't know. I mean, you can ask people all day long, but if you're not there and you haven't kind of walked the walk, you're really not in a position to criticize these guys or question their value. No, no question. And I'll tell you, the really the main, the main thing that I got out of the piece was that you're looking at something that really, like you mentioned, can't be quantified, and there's really no numeric value on what a coaching, you know, what a coach or what a coach does to impact the player. I mean, you you could go look at a guy, let's say, and I'll throw some random examples out there, Leo Mazzoni or Dave Duncan or something, and you could look at the track record for pitchers that, let's say, they've rebuilt or, or uh, you know, a history of just having a lot of good pitchers at one time. But you can't necessarily make the correlation to say that this pitching coach was the reason that this guy got better, or this coach was the exact reason that this guy got better. And I think the hardest thing to really justify or the really hardest thing to back up is, you know, because there's no numbers to really quantify it. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, and I I played for Leo and got to work with him. And certainly I think, you know, a lot of people are hard on him. You know, don't give him the credit he used to get because he, you know, he had a great staff in Atlanta. Uh, it did well and then didn't go as well for him in Baltimore, but that's not necessarily the case. You don't know, you know exactly what happened. And you can't take, and I'm not saying Baltimore had this, but you can't take a bunch of terrible pitchers, give them a great, and you know they have they have great years. I mean, great I, point. You know, I've had really good pitching coaches that I didn't have good years under, and, and that's not their fault. That doesn't devalue them as a, as a pitching coach. And so it's, it is it's very difficult. Uh, ultimately, I think you know you have players. Your, your job is to keep them in their, in their general area, kind of, you know, keep them going, help them make a little improvement, especially at that level. Now, at the lower levels, it's a little different. The lower levels, especially the early ones, it is still about development. It is still about teaching. Uh, AAA becomes a little bit more of a mix. You're still making improvements, but you're trying to line yourself up ready for promotion so you can get right to the big leagues and, and there's not going to be a big adjustment. And so I think at each level, the coach has kind of a different job. And, um, you know, it, and it doesn't go based on your playing experience either. I mean, that's one of the things that I touched on in the article. Some people say, and I've heard this and I've experienced this, where great players don't make good, great coaches. Uh, and that's sometimes because it's difficult for them to identify with the struggling player. Uh, now, there's been good players that can be good coaches, but I think it's it's more or less uncommon for that to happen, to be honest. It's for the guys that have really had to dig in in their careers, the guys that really had to pay attention, that had to do extra to, to stay in the game, generally they seem to have a better understanding of the game. If they can communicate well, they can teach the game. And that's why the catchers, I think, generally make pretty good managers, the good ones. Um, you know, I played for, I played with Eric Wedge, actually, um, in 1996, near the end of his career. And I was like, this guy's going to be a good manager someday. You can just kind of tell. I played with Brad Osmos. He's going to be a really good manager someday. And so I actually played with John Pratt. I played with a lot of the guys that are managing now. In the big leagues, with or for, I played with Kirk Gibson, uh, you can just tell some guys have it. You can tell why they're, they're good managers or why they're going to be good coaches. Yeah, no question about it, man. Listen, I keep up the good work, man. Wish you the best of luck in Winter League. And I uh, hope the next time I talk to you, you'll be talking about, uh, you know, your return to the major leagues and, uh, you know, how imminent that is. That would be nice. All right, CJ, thanks for your time, man. I appreciate having you on, buddy. My pleasure. Take care. No problem. Yeah, was C.J. Nikowski is a current pitcher. Last year pitched with the Mets organization and, you know, was trying to make a comeback, you know, going to the different arm angle and stuff like that. And definitely, um, you know, it's definitely a challenge. 
And I think he's doing a, a very intelligent, a very smart thing by going to winter ball, which he actually leaves, as he said, from, to the Dominican Republic tomorrow. And you can see how that goes. And hopefully the guy goes out there and can show that he's made the transition to being the type of reliever that he's looking to be. And he obviously, he's looking to be the lefty specialist. And the fact that you throw from the left-hand side and you can throw strikes and you can make the ball move a little bit really gives you the opportunity at age 40, you know, 40, 41, where Nikowski is now, you know, gives you a, a sure-fire opportunity to be able to stick around in this game. And, you know, it's a benefit from throwing left-handed because teams can always use a guy that can go out there in a big spot and get a Ryan Howard or a Prince Fielder or a Robinson Cano out. I mean, there's always that seventh, eighth inning. You know, you got, all right, man, you got a couple guys on and, you know, shit, Robinson Cano's up. And you want a guy that's going to go in there and make him feel uncomfortable. And a lot of times with the changing of the arm angle and stuff like that, you know, really makes it really makes it that much more difficult on the left-hand batter. And I'm not, listen, I'm not preaching anything that you guys don't already know. But, you know, certainly a good chance for CJ. And I hope, you know, at age 41, he really gets a chance to go out there and get another full season or two in the big leagues. And I think that would certainly mean a lot, you know, if he, if he can't. And, uh, you know, hopefully CJ, like I said, the next time I talk to him, you know, hopefully I have him on the show, will be uh, will be the next time, you know, when he's about to, you know, break in again, whether, you know, it was for the, you know, the Mets, which he pitched in their farm system last year, or another team. And, you know, hopefully the guy gets another shot. And, you know, you'd like to see a guy who really has come full circle. He's done pretty much everything that you could do as a pitcher. You know, he's been, he went from being the starter, the high draft pick by the Cincinnati Reds. They thought he was going to be a big-time starting pitcher, top-of-the-rotation type of guy. And then he goes to Detroit and then with Houston, and they make him into a reliever. And he goes up and down for so many different years. Has some success sometimes, but you know, has a lot of ups and downs. And finally gets himself to a point where he wants to give it one last shot. And he feels that, you know, going, you know, to be to be a Darren O'Day type or a Terry Leach or a Kent Tocolvi or, you know, you could name a lot of other guys. Obviously, a lot more lefties are dropping down to a point that they haven't before. Pedro Feliciano, you know, that that's that's your best option, your best chance to really make it. And I tell you, man, I, you know, the guy certainly has a great career ahead of him as a baseball writer. I mean, a great piece. If you check it out for Baseball Perspectives, he wrote about sabermetrics and the lack of uh, being able to quantify um, and give credit to what a good coach can can do for you. And I think that's amazing to really find out. But um, we're going to finish up the program right here, John Pielli, Passball Show on TR Radio Network. I'm going to give you a chance if you want to call in, 609-910-0687. Take you right up to 7 o'clock where Philly Baseball beat is going to get you into the night. We go from passball show to Philly baseball beat. Uh, Throwdown Thursdays starts, of course, with Wire for Sports that comes in for, for me from 3 to 5. And in a couple weeks, and we're trying to set it up to probably two weeks from today, which if I'm not mistaken, I don't really have my calendar on me, and I hope I'm right about this. I believe it's the 13th of December. And let me just check. Yes, Thursday, December 13th. Wire for Sports will be on from 3 to 5. But Chris New York Mitchell and Chris Boston Spezial will be joining me in studio for the passball show from 5 to 7. And, you know, hopefully everything's able to work out with that. Those guys will still be able to do it. And we're going to talk a lot of baseball. And it'll be great to have, you know, three guys in the studio bouncing stuff off each other. And, of course, you know, uh, Mitchell, like me, is a Mets fan. And Spezial is a Boston fan. 
And, you know, they kind of just go back and forth with a lot of stuff. And I think, you know, the, the discussion, which really is going to be heating up in baseball at that time, from now to then, when the winter meetings happen and trades and free agent signings and things start to move around, this and that and the other thing, you know, it's going to be a good time to just bounce some ideas off of you and say, hey, what team looks the best right now? You know, how did the Mets look? How did the Red Sox look? How did the Yankees look? How did the Dodgers and the Angels and the Phillies and the Padres and the Diamondbacks and the Marlins and, you know, how do those teams make out? Because things from now until then are certainly going to be a lot different. And I think, you know, you're going to see the free agents like the Grankies and the Hamiltons. They're going to get their homes. And if they're not getting their homes, you're going to wonder where they're going to. But I, I guarantee it, this time next week, you're going to listen to the past ball show right here on the MTR Radio Network, and I'm going to be telling you that there are some surprises. You know, teams got certain players that weren't expected to. Certain teams are more active than you thought they'd be. Two teams that I think are absolutely going to be active. And when you know, like I said when I was right about B.J. Upton going to the Braves, I'm telling you I'm going to be right about this one. The Chicago Cubs and the San Diego Padres are going to be extremely active. And are they going to go out for superstars? I don't know. I think the Padres may be more inclined to go after a superstar than the Chicago Cubs. And that being said, I wouldn't be surprised to be talking about some serious moves made, not necessarily between the two teams. I know Jed Hoyer has the connection to San Diego, yada, 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 the Anthony Rizzo trade and all that. And I'm not saying that they're necessarily going to be trading with each but I could see the Cubs having a piece or two. And, you know, I'll put in parentheses a guy that I'm, I'm throwing out there to say that may very well be a Chicago Cub, and I mentioned this earlier, and that's James Shields. And everybody talks about Shields going to, let's say, the Dodgers or the Red Sox or, you know, this team or that team. If James Shields went to the Chicago Cubs, the average baseball fan will be like, how does that make any sense? You know, how does he make them better? How, why does he want to go to the Cubs? Sometimes things just happen, and I wouldn't be surprised if something like that happened. Like I said about San Diego, and you could call me nuts, but where are your options for Josh Hamilton? If you picked X team and you said this, he, Josh Hamilton is going to be on this team, would it surprise you? Outside of teams like the Mets or the Astros or you know maybe a cash-strapped team like the Oakland Athletics or the Miami Marlins, really outside of that, how many teams would you be surprised to see Josh Hamilton go to? And as I say that, as I move on with that, I think a good fit would be the San Diego Padres. I said that they would be a good fit for Kyle Loesch, though I think he'll end up in Kansas City. I could be wrong. I mean, and listen, I'm probably wrong. But, you know, Josh Hamilton in San Diego had no business competing a couple years ago to near, near a game of getting to the postseason. So once again... This is John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Lots to go over next week, so make sure you tune in to me. I'll be at Bogey's Tavern. And, uh, you know, speaking of Bogey's Tavern, you got in about five minutes or so, Philly Baseball Beat followed by MTR Sports Report and the special Christmas music special. Like I said, I'm going to be recording the Greg Carlucci show within the next, you know, couple hours. That'll be playing live on Saturday from 8 to 10 p.m. So, listen, thanks a lot for your time. And I uh, hope to see you again soon next week. Past Ball Show, John Pielli, MTR Radio Network. MTR Radio.
Hello, everyone. This is Joe Lamort from ADD Sports Radio. Thanks for tuning in to MTRRadio.com. Don't forget to tap that app in the Android Market and iPhone App Store. Search MTR Radio on your handheld device. Radio ...and be automatically entered to win one of our great monthly prizes. Don't miss out on the best new talk station any longer.